From the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, this is Human-Centered. Today on Human-Centered, interrogating history with renowned social and political economic historian Frederick Cooper. Now a professor emeritus of history at New York University, as well as a three-time CASBIS fellow, Cooper is a towering figure in his profession, established through a capacious body of work in the fields of global history, colonial imperialism, African history, and post-colonial theory. In this episode, we'll hear him in conversation with two 2022-23 CASBIS fellows whose work he has influenced. Gene Beeman, an associate professor of sociology at UC Santa Barbara who studies race, ethnicity, and identity in the context of nations and citizenship, including a current book project on ethno-racial minorities in France with respect to its post-colonial history. And Martin Williams, an associate professor of public management at Oxford University who works at the intersection of comparative politics, public policy, and public sector organizational performance, and is currently writing a book on the challenges of civil service reforms in Africa. Thanks to their studied engagement with his work, Cooper delivers a masterclass on some of the big themes and lessons that have emerged throughout his career, including questioning taken-for-granted concepts such as identity, modernity, globalization, and empire, the importance of following multiple historical sequences rather than abstracting from moments in time, and, in service of building solidarity among peoples, thinking relationally rather than through constructions of fixed categories. Let's listen in. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you, Fred. Marge and I are really excited about this conversation. So let's just uh, start here. Um, so your scholarship started out focusing on African labor history, moved on to citizenship and the state in Africa that explore the connections between France and colonial Africa. And some of your more recent books are global explorations and histories of big abstract questions such as empire. Can you say a little bit about the genealogy of this interest as it relates to your overall trajectory? Well, we're talking about a 50-plus year trajectory since I started out in this in this business when I went to graduate school in, in 1969. I think the common thread across this half century is that I've addressed some big topics about inequality, about exploitation, about power relations, and I've done so while questioning taken-for-granted concepts. My earliest work, including my PhD dissertation, was about slavery in coastal East Africa. Uh, and that was talking about slavery, which in the 1960s was already a, a big topic in relationship, particularly the Americas. But I was talking about it outside of the American plantation complex. And so it was exploring relationships between a concept that has general implications and a particular instance. I went on to work about uh, what happened after slavery, both in agricultural and urban labor, in a situation where the big issue was how do you think about capitalism in a situation where you don't have the generalization of proletarianization, where you have different forms of, of economic exploitation without the monopoly of land by a single capitalist class and the reduction of everybody else to proletarian status. And the question was, what if different people on the top and bottom of the social ladder uh, make of of all of this. While studying this question, it became clear to me that the 
a big actor in this whole story of, about capitalism in coastal East Africa, urban and rural, was the colonial state. And so from there, I went on to be thinking about how one can conceptualize a power relationship that is not a totalizing one. For colonial states, in some places were very strong, in other cases, very, very weak, including the one that my original research had been on. So how do you think about asymmetrical power relationships without falling into the dichotomy of everybody's on the same level or absolute uh, domination? From there, I went on to look beyond forms of empire that were specifically colonial to other forms of, uh, of empire going back in time as far as the Roman and Chinese empires in, in the millennium before the current era. Uh, in other words, thinking about empire in a deep historical concept. And my most recent work uh, is about citizenship, but it's about citizenship that does not assume a priori that you're talking about national citizenship. Citizenship as, as we acquired the word and as a lot of our political thinking has, uh, has followed this goes back to the Roman Empire, where it's decidedly not a national citizenship that is in question. So I was working, in my uh, research work was on a much more recent period, the 1940s, 1950s, where it still is in question about what is the unit of citizenship, national, imperial, or maybe even something else. So there's a scalar question involved uh, here, as indeed there is in, in all the cases that I've talked about, in every one of these instances, it's dealing with the history of a place, but in relationship to other places, in a world in which relationships are very important, but not symmetrical or, or, or equal, and have varying degrees uh, of intensity. So I, I think in that, in that sense, there is a common thread that goes across the work that I began in, in graduate school at the end of the 1960s and early 1970s to what I've been doing most recently. Thanks, Fred. And I think that that common thread that you highlighted of the idea of questioning taken for granted concepts and doing so with respect to kind of big questions and ways that can really change the way that people think is one of the things that certainly I most admire about your work uh, and that I think is really characteristic of it. So I guess my question is, as a scholar, how have you approached doing that kind of work that does call these big concepts into question? Because it's you know, it's very easy to do badly or do unconvincingly, and you've managed to do it very thoughtfully and persuasively. So what are your uh, secrets or your tricks or the things that you've learned about how to approach that? We need concepts. Uh, we can't just plunge into empirical work without them. And if we think we're doing that, we're actually just uh, we're just kidding ourselves. It means we're using a, a concept without without looking at it critically. But my view about concepts is that they are good to think with rather than to think in. And my critique of concepts like globalization, uh, but also identity and uh, modernity, and one can add to the list, is that these concepts are problematic, uh, largely because they tend to imply an answer before asking the question. So the question is how to how, how to think about the work that a concept does and whether it gets in the way or adds to the sophistication and the perspicacity of the questions that one is asking. And now in my book, which I wrote much of at CASPIS and, uh, when I was a fellow in 2002 to 2003, uh, 
colonialism in question, uh, has a section which talks about globalization as well as uh, identity and modernity. And this section of the book has earned me the title of concept cop. <laughs> uh, now, I don't have the, the authority to arrest anybody, so it, it's not an entirely appropriate uh, designation, but it does reflect my tendency to, to think critically uh, about concepts and, and ask the question of, does it illuminate more than it obscures? Now, people often question me about the concepts that I do use. Empire, for example, which is a very capacious concept. It can run from from Genghis Khan to the Asante Empire of the 18th century in Africa, to the British Empire in, in the 20th century, to Putin's uh, Russian Federation now. Uh, and that's a lot to put under one uh, title. So the, the question which strikes me as, an, uh, as entirely legitimate is, does this concept illuminate more than it conceals? I think that one can make a case that it does illuminate more than it conceals, that there is a basis for looking both at the common features and the uh, and the distinctions that apply within the category. And particularly that once you pose the question of empire, you're posing it in relationship to other kinds of political forms. And it becomes most illuminating at the boundaries. The ambiguity becomes the most interesting part of it. You can discuss the temptation of any kind of political system, a monarchy or a national uh, entity, to build an empire. And at the same time, because empire, the definition of empires entails both the creation and the reproduction of difference within the polity, it helps us to understand the, the tendency of empires to, to fall apart. So you can look at the tendencies to come together and to come apart uh, relationally. Uh, so it strikes me as a useful concept. But I think it should be critiqued the same way I critique globalization. And so my argument is that it can withstand that I think this concept can withstand the critique. Well, the article that you 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 cite uh, suggests that globalization basically cannot. When I wrote that article, globalization was being talked about as a phenomenon of the 1980s and 1990s, very much a post post something or other. Although it wasn't altogether clear what it was post. Well, then you have people coming along. Oh, they say the era of globalization was actually the 16th century when Spain and Portugal started to extend their networks around the world. And then the others say, no, it's, that's a little early, but it's really the 19th century when you had rapid communication, you had the steamboat, you had the telegraph, et cetera. Well, a concept that you can date plus or minus 300 years is not, <laughs> not a very useful concept. It, it is a concept that conceals more than it, than it reveals. So let us instead ask, what are we really talking about? And there probably is no one word that's going to describe it the way globalization attempted to do. Uh, but that strikes me as, as, the, as the line we should follow. One can make very similar arguments about identity and, and, and about modernity, that those concepts, I, I think, get in the way of the useful work that we need to do, which is to understand what do historical actors in the present or in the past mean when they say, identity, or when they say, we want to be modern. Those are important questions to ask. Anybody past or present who uses the concept modern, we want to know what they mean and what and what and uh, and how that fits into uh, wider patterns. Getting a really good definition of modernity doesn't seem to me to advance that cause. I want to pick up on that, I, that question that you posed of what do these you know, historically, what have people meant when they say identity and modernity and what what is it that they themselves are thinking? Because I think that's 
another thing that both Gene and I admire about your research is that you do a really amazing job of putting yourself in the shoes and the headspace of the historical actors that you're studying and trying to understand what they were doing, not through a sort of uh, framework or unfolding of history that we know and see and inhabit in the 21st century, but what they thought they were doing and what they understood as the world and its possibilities and their goals and constraints. And, you know, I think it kind of sounds obvious when you say it like that, that yes, that is something that historians and social scientists sh should do, but so many people don't do it or don't do it well. And so again, I wanted to ask, what have you learned over your career about how to do that kind of work well? In some ways, it comes easy to me as an historian rather than as a, as a social scientist studying the present. Because historians, we, we basically study dead people, and uh, we're not dead. We're practically, by definition, putting ourselves in the place of uh, somebody living in a very different context. So the question then becomes, can we understand that? Uh, now, of course, historians may, make similar errors to other social scientists, and they think that a category from the 21st century is going to apply in the, in the 18th. But as long as you're doing serious historical work, you're likely to find it's more complicated than uh, than that. So in some ways, I think what it, this implies for research strategy is actually very hard to put your 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 finger on because there isn't a there's not a formula. You have to figure stuff out. And the importance, it seems to me, for an historian who's doing research in archives, and this could be an oral archive as well as a uh, as a as a documentary one. The important thing is to let yourself be surprised. If you go to an archive and, and look for something, you may very well find it. The question is, are you going to see things that you didn't expect to find? And that's that to me is is is, is really crucial to doing historical research well. And I think one can apply that to other social sciences. If you're too tightly bound to a framework of expectations, you're likely to confirm them. You have to be open to not only to disconfirming an hypothesis, but the figuring out that the question you asked in the first place wasn't a particularly good one. That somebody out there whom you're interviewing or or who, whose accounts you're reading has a better idea about how an issue, uh, the kind of issue that they were were facing. That seems to me the the important point. Now, we all know at the same time that we ourselves are coming from a particular position and that we need to be aware of that so that we can look beyond it. So in a sense, all history does start at the present, the, the historian's present, but the task is to go back in time and start over again, to start with the conceptual place in which people find themselves. Now, this is not always easy. And one of the, one of the big arguments I've had in my, in my recent work is how do you deal with the politics of, about questions of uh, citizenship in an imperial or national context when we we know that mo that most empires failed and people eventually became citizens of different national states do you start with that presumption and work backwards then what do you do about the problem of people who you know 50 years ago or 100 years ago who didn't know how the story was going to end uh, so in a, in a way, I think if we're to study questions over time, whether we're doing it as, as card-carrying historians or, or as historical sociologists or, or historically-minded political scientists, the, the question is, how do you go back to a, a point at, at which multiple possibilities are in play and figure out 
how and why certain ones prevailed over others. But if you assume the endpoint, then you can't do that. And you can't actually study the historical process that ended up in the place where you think things did end up. Okay, so sticking with this concept of taking for granted concepts and, and leaping forward a bit sort of uh, temporally, um, in recent years, we've seen a resurgence of anxiety, quote unquote, in French academia and the public sphere around the sort of importation of so-called U.S. ideas, such as critical race theory, um, the sort of move around Islamogosisma. Um, how would you characterize this present move? Well, that particular argument, I think, is a red herring. Uh, concepts about race, including critical race theory, is either good or it's not. It's useful or it's not. Whether it's American or not is not a very interesting question. Yet it, it is something that a number of uh, French uh, politicians and some academics get hooked on. And that has to do with a particular kind of present-mindedness that you see in, in France, where both on the right and the left, American has been a, become a, a symbol of things that are bad. And it's just not a very helpful way of, of thinking about it. Uh, one could, of course, do the same thing in, re in reverse and, and say, look at all these Americans who are quoting Derrida and Foucault. Uh, is the problem with Derrida and Foucault that they're French? Or can we see the usefulness and the, and the limitations of the kind of theoretical current that Derrida and Foucault or Bourdieu or, or, or many other French intellectuals have represented? So the, the Americanness of this concept seems, seems to me to be a completely unnecessary and distracting argument and nothing more. That doesn't mean that comparisons about how people think about race within the political life of France and political life of the United States are not under. Those are, in fact, quite interesting questions. And, and there is a lot of room for thinking for thinking uh, comparatively. Uh, but when we do that comparative thinking, whose conceptual frameworks are we going to use? Uh, and I don't think the frameworks that we want to use to think about differences and similarities in how race questions are posed in France and the United States, that conceptual apparatus shouldn't be labeled French or, or American. So um, your work has been instrumental in delineating the different ways that French colonial history is actively suppressed and marginalized and understanding of both French history and its present. And I think that speaks to some of what's happening in France presently. Um, how do you see this suppression uh, present today? And then relatedly, you've discussed the important distinction between nation state and empire state in terms of understanding modern French as well as other societies. Can you sort of elaborate on that? Well, this, this question begins where the where my response to your last question and uh, ends off because I think there are real there are really interesting questions uh here now to my mind here is where why it's important to think about historical sequences and not just to look for say the characteristic of France or Africa or the United States and say here's a, here's an explanation that we want to do that will work across time and across and across space. For sequences is, is really important. And I think when one the, the debates about France, include about, about race in France, including and about colonialism in France, including circumstances and times when questions are posed and not posed is, is, is really uh important. After France lost the Algerian War in 1962 and Algeria becomes in, independent, there was a period of a good 20, 25 years in which uh, most French scholars and intellectuals and political uh, activists tended to avoid the colonial question altogether. There was a, there was, uh, a kind of a gap. Then by the 1990s, I think a generation had passed and people came back to it. But one thing that people were looking for when they came back to it 
was this does colonial racism explain current racism in France? And some people on the on the critical edge of things, uh, especially on the on on the left, uh, said yes, you can ex you can explain race tensions in France on the basis of colonialism. On the conservative end of the spectrum, people were were saying, well. No, you don't explain it by colonialism. You, you explain it by the character of African people or uh, or, or of Muslims in general. Uh, that that the problem is cultural. It's what they they brought, what they bring to the present. But if you look at the problem historically, it becomes much more complicated than that. Neither African culture nor is, is Islamic society is independent of time. That changes on circumstances and uh, where people are and 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 so on. So. Uh, the life, the life of somebody of, from African immigration, is not the same as as those of that person's relatives who who were in uh, in Mali or uh, or Burkina Faso. And with French colonial history, you've got to be careful about about time as well. Uh, certainly, up and, up until World War II, the distinction between who is a citizen and who is a subject was highly racialized. Legally, it was not, but in, in actual fact, the way uh, it operated was racially. It was not just a, a status dis distinction. But then there's this period between World War, the end of World War II, uh, and the end of the colonial uh, of colonial domination, 1960 in Sub-Saharan Africa, 62 in the case of uh, of Algeria, where the French government was trying to hold the, the thing together, very much aware that it, that the power of France had been much diminished after the war. Uh, and that the challenge of, of political movements in the colonies was becoming acute. And their strategy was to try to move towards what you might call an inclusive imperialism, the key point of which was abolishing the distinction between subject and, and, and citizen that had been enshrined in French, in French law and, pra and practice. So everybody became a citizen with, in theory, equal rights. Now, this didn't operate the way in practice, the way it did on on paper, and there's plenty of discrimination, uh, plenty of prejudice, uh, plenty of exploitation that that continued. But the terms of the debate have changed, and for for 15 years, you have an argument about wh whether imperial citizenship can actually become uh, a meaningful category, useful for people on uh, in Africa, uh, as well as for France, and it it was not because people's hearts and minds had suddenly changed. It was from the point of view of the French government, these were reasons of state. If they wanted to maintain France as something bigger than a small country in Western Eurasia, they had to, to shift how colonial rule was practiced. In fact, they had to try to make the argument that it was, that it was no longer colonial, but it, was re, but it would remain French. So that really opened up a possibility uh, for people in coming from Africa, coming from the Maghreb, uh, to make claims on the basis of equality. So you have this whole talking about equality among French people who are juridically French. And it's a tremendously important debate. One of the things that happened during that period was what was known as, as le droit de libre circulation, the right of free movement. People from French territories overseas had the legal right to come to European France or any other part of the empire. They no longer call it the empire, but we can leave that in advance. They had the legal right to come there, not just as immigrants, but as rights-bearing citizens. They were not immigrants, in fact, because they, they came with their citizenship that they'd had since 1946, or in the case of West Indians, since 1848. 
so you have this period which is absolutely crucial because that's where the current population, current non-white population of France comes from, uh, from this period of enhanced circulation that then goes on after independence on the basis of treaties that were negotiated uh, that preserved the right of free movement for a period of, a, of about 10 to 15 years after most of African territories became independent. So why don't we think about race questions in France after this period as being shaped by this opening? And from the point of, point of view of Africans, this is of people of African descent in France, or pe people of Algerian descent, or Moroccan or Tunisian descent, this is terribly important because they saw themselves as having a basis in France as citizens uh, that was then being threatened by a reaction that occurs afterward. So France, after the loss of, it, of its overseas territories, becomes much more national and much more European. But it's got a population within its, its current borders within continental Europe that is much more mixed than it had, had been. And I think it's important to see the race question in France in those terms both from the point of view of, of people who had seen themselves as uh, as the masters of a colonial system, which they then tried to compromise and then lost, and people who entrenched themselves within France under a situ situation of opening that they were then trying to, uh, to make something of. And to make something of was at all times a, a struggle, but it was a struggle that was being conducted on the basis of French citizenship in a certain period, and for people of African or Maghrebian origin who acquired citizenship or legal status, uh, they are making the struggle from that point of, of view. And it's quite a different one from the position of the colonial subject. So we need to look at this whole question in dynamic terms, uh, which is hard to do, uh, both for people defending a point of view of, of a French population that's Franco-Francais, that traces its inheritance to Clovis or Joan of Arc and whatever, and for, for people who are, who are saying that the primary issue that, that we're facing is the heritage of colonial racism. Uh, these are real points of view, but the actual trajectory is one that shapes the terms of the debate in very important ways. I want to ask as well, Fred, you know, I think empire and colonialism and its legacies are very present in academia right now. Um, they're very present in political discourse from, you know, everything from decolonizing curriculums to debates over uh, statues, as well as immigration and racial politics and, you know, in many areas of our societies. I should say most of those debates are sort of happening with respect to the legacies of the kind of 19th, 18th, 19th, 20th century European empires that you you mentioned earlier as a kind of subset of empires. Um, is there anything that, you know, when you see these debates happening, uh, is there anything that you as a historian of empires and colonialism, that subset as well as more broadly, wish that people understood or wish that people framed differently or? Well, my first one would be the point that I, that I made uh early in response to, to Jean's question, which is which is basically the importance of looking at trajectories and, and not not just abstracting from colonial empire one thing and, and making that the the point. I'm not I'm not against uh drawing a lesson and if people want to say you have very good and actually rather simple reasons why you want to 
tear down a statue of Cecil Rhodes. Uh, well, he, he was an evil character, and 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 uh, there's an argument that you're you're making, which is which is good basis in a, in historical uh, fact. But if you're if you're trying to under, understand uh, how racialization works over time, well, you need to look not just at the fact of colonialism, but at the, but at colonial history and evolving uh, patterns. You need to uh, look at that with some sensibility of about how people are shaped by the history and not just by the fact of colonialism. Uh, but in that in that regard, I'd, I'd actually go beyond the point you were making in your in your question about, about these controversies being limited to the colonial empires of Western European powers. Look at what's going on right now in Ukraine uh, and in Russia, the Russian Federation more generally. You had a process of empire dissolution, particularly 1989-1991, and you have a process of empire recreation. And not an empire French style or British style, but one that Putin himself sees that rooted rooted in, in the in the pre-1917 Russia. So in that regard, the issue of a non-Western form of empire is very much part of current events in an unusually explicit way in that Putin and, and the ideologues he follows, like Alexander Dugan, are making a specific case about the importance of the tradition of Russian empire going back to 1917, and in fact, leapfrogging over 1917 to 1991, uh, because they're not defending empire on the, on the basis of communism or Leninist ideology. And in fact, Putin is quite critical of uh, of Lenin. So there, there is an actuality we talk about. In fact, um, Jane and I are publishing a, a book that deals with some of these questions called Post-Imperial Possibilities, Eurasia, Euro-Africa, Afro-Asia. One of, the, one of the things that I've found really surprising about reading your work on empire is uh, your point that we think of empires, I'd say we as a scholars and sort of people politically left on uh, in the US or UK at the moment, um, tend to think of empire through the lens of all of the horrible, horrible, horrible things that empire did and oppression and that kind of thing. One of the things that I think is interesting from your books is that while you don't, you know, you don't dispute that at all, you're certainly not sort of making apologies for any of those things the empire did. You also point out that empire sometimes provided a framework within which people could imagine identities more broadly um, and kind of beyond nation states and in which surprising types of solidarity sometimes emerged. And, you know, we live in a period when it feels like borders are hardening and identities are getting smaller and narrower and more rigid. Um, does your thinking about post-imperial possibilities have any lessons for how we might think about broadening identities and solidarities and solidarities in our world going forward? Well, I would say that one of the things that we can do is to step back in time. And it wasn't so clear that forms of identification would be narrowing, that that you'd you'd have a an attempt to erect fences and boundaries and rigid boundaries and police crossing of, of them in an intense way and see what possibilities were emerging. And that is very much the theme of Jane and my uh, book, uh, keeping in mind that the outcomes are not necessarily positive. 
ones. Clearly, the, exa the example of Putin's recreation of, em of empire is a warning against, against any kind of romanticism about what imperial inclusion can bring you, uh, but it certainly isn't unique. Uh, but the, the, the question you posed was directly posed by some of the actors that I've written about uh, in my writing on French Africa, uh, and which will be addressed in a somewhat different way in, in our book. And the uh, Leopold Sedar Sangor made the point very directly in, in the uh, 1950s and saying, if we want to talk about independence, we have to do it in relationship to interdependence. And and the world that were that he was thinking about in the 1950s was, was a world of connections, unequal connections in many regards, both colonial and, and uh, other kinds of economic relations, but connections nonetheless. So Sangor's plea was to think of, uh, about differences in, in culture in relationships to connections across culture. Uh, and he very much saw that humanity consisted of multiple civilizations, and the idea was not to wall oneself in any one of them, but to think, uh, to build upon a sense of, of collectivity and go beyond it and, and look uh, at relationships with other people who, who had different notions of what collective life was all about, but see the relationship among them and non-antagonism uh, between them. So these are very important thoughts. It's important to think of, of, of them as being posed in the very era in the 1940s and 1950s where, when colonial empire was being demolished. Uh, one had to think in different ways about interconnections, not just about uh, national autonomy. Some of Sangora's ideas about a Franco-African uh, confederation or, or about Euro-Africa were along those lines. In a very different way, so, so was the Afro-Asian political uh, movements, the Bandung Conference of 1955, uh, the non-aligned movement that began with the Belgrade Conference of 1961, these were also attempts in a, in a quite different way to form connections. In the case of Euro-Africa, you could argue that these were vertical connections. Afro-Asia was an attempt at horizontal connections. Now, in both cases, they had to confront not only the power of existing states, but also the power of capitalism as a, as a set of global structures. And I think I think one has to see their fate in relationship to uh, to both of them. Uh, but the, the the question of interdependence has been very much posed in a period when independence was, was, was also in question. So in answer to your question about the present, it seems to me uh, that we, we have to be very clear about the relationship of the two. I think we should be supporting Ukraine in, in, in fighting against imperialist aggression. But we also can't, we don't, we don't want to become trapped into assuming that the only answer to that is that each state should be defending its own integrity and nothing else. They should be defending principles. And I think Ukraine is doing, is doing that as, as well, defending democratic principles that cross. So you, you need to cross those lines, as well as defend them. So I you know, think we need to think positively about how we operate in terms of, of, of connections. Uh, it's much more complicated than just saying, oh, globalization is happening. Isn't everything happening on a global scale, which it clearly is not. We clearly have seen at the same time that you have interdependence in certain respects and you, you have flows of capital 
and and movement of ideas at the same time that you, that you that you have barriers against human movement being erected and barriers against the movement of thought being erected uh, at the same time as you're having that, you, you have to deal with, with both at the same time. So you can't just romantically say, oh, everything's going to happen on a global scale. It's, that clearly is not, has not been the case. It is not going to be the case. So we need to think dialectically about issues of integrity and issues of connectivity. And, and that if there is a lesson of the the past and relationship to the present, it seems to me it's that one, which doesn't turn out to be a recipe. It, ter- it turns out to be a framework for how we can think about things. Yeah, so building off of that a little bit, um, I read your recent Citizenship Studies article on colonialism and post-colonialism controversies in France. And so I would love to hear your thoughts about kind of, you know, what is currently exciting to you about contemporary scholarship on colonialism and, and citizenship and kind of where you see, where you hope the field does go and what is sort of needed at this juncture, kind of riffing a bit of, of where you just ended. Well, uh, it's going in many directions, and I think that's a good thing. Uh I don't want to be considered the founder of a school of thought. I think schools of thought are dangerous phenomena. Uh, one of the encouraging trends that you see with scholarship that's emerging is to blur the line be- between what could be called African history uh, and imperial history. One could say the same thing about Asian history and imperial history. Uh, even in, in, in relatively recent times, a lot of what became known as the new imperial history really grew out of either English history or French history. And it was saying, well, well, you can't just talk about France, we have to talk about greater France, and that France defined itself in relationship to other uh, places. But it was largely conducted by people who did research in, in French archives and were, th- were thinking about France in relationship to the other uh, side of the world, other parts of the world, but very much from Paris. Whereas African historians got, uh, we cut our eye teeth on doing the reverse and, say, and saying we don't want to be thinking in, in terms of though uh, an imperial point of view. We want to see uh, things from the point of view uh, of, uh, of Africans and, and do it in African terms. Well, is it possible for those two tendencies to meet and to think about, uh, about colonial history as an interactive process, an unequal process? an asymmetrical process, but one in which unequal relationships are nonetheless relationships. Uh, and I think some of the recent work about how empire actually works on the ground does exactly that, and neither falls into old-style imperial history nor my generation's concept of a very African-African history, uh, but takes the insights of both, uh, is aware of differences of... of uh, of language differences, of framing of, of issues, and sees what, what happens on the ground. This, to my mind, is some of the most encouraging uh, uh, scholarship. But I think it's fair to, to say that we, we don't want to see scholarship follow too closely any one trend. For, for example, in the 1990s, there was a big trend towards cultural history, and political economy got shunted aside, and, and uh, people who tried to keep doing it were uh, some of my friends and colleagues looked down their noses at at people who were still talking about class in the 1990s. Well, one should have been talking about class in the 1990s, which doesn't mean one 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 shouldn't have been talking uh, about about cinema or art or any other dimension of cultural history. 
And there's been a kind of revival of political economy in, in, uh, in some quarters. Uh, that's a good thing. But in a way, what uh, was misleadingly called the cultural turn should not have been a, a, a turn at all. It should have been a, a complementary trajectory. And I don't particularly like to see scholarship drifting from one turn to another turn. It, it, it should take into account that there are multiple ways of, of thinking about uh, about history and, and, and multiple scales of thinking small, thinking big, and the dichotomy of, of global and, and national or global or even global and local was always a false dichotomy. Uh, most of history occurs in between the, the, the two. You have connections that exist and have their limitations. Even empire, which obviously exists on a planetary scale uh, and did so from a very early time since Magellan at, at the very least, or we're, we're talking early 1600s, the, the lines of connection were very thin. Uh, they were long but thin, and colonial power thickened in many instances, but it never thickened infinitely. And one of the lessons of, of studying the early colonial period in African history was just how limited it was and the kinds of ways in which African elites, and, and in some cases, uh, uh, very ordinary people could manipulate the limitations of, uh, of it and find niches within a, within a power structure and eventually pry those niches wider. So although those... Uh, the efforts to look in the middle of, of relationships, of power relationships, of spatial relationships, seems to me an, uh, of, uh, an important and quite positive trend in scholarship. Building off of that, maybe one final question to ask you um, is what advice you have for scholars who want to do work that, as you know, you've done throughout your career, uh, scholarship that tries to open up and expand our understandings of the world and the possibilities for people in it and our futures, um, and in in particular ways in which humans can see ourselves and each other and build solidarities and find better ways to live and coexist together. Be curious, I think, is one of the most important ways of approaching the kind of uh, those kind of values that you're that you're talking about. Uh, I think it's important to study people other than the communities you come from. Uh, it's fine to study communities you do come from, uh, but not exclusively. And to the extent to which you remain convinced that the, the categories that you fall into yourself are the most important ones, you may not even be able to understand yourself very well. Uh, it's very important to be able to think to think relationally. Uh, so uh, I would hope that people do look far and wide to uh, the kinds of things they want to, to study, and that when they do so, that, that they do so with whatever ideas they, they come to, but with a critical sense on the, of those various ideas and an openness to finding uh, things that, uh, that are quite different from what they had initially expected. For those reasons, I think if you try to think about it institutionally, it's very important for people to be encouraging study abroad and particularly scholarship abroad, whether it's in an area framework or, or not. During the 1990s, there was, I think, an entirely false debate about area studies. The basic point is that it's important to know something about someplace. Uh, to stay confined to an area is, is, is problematic, to think in, in bounded terms is, but to, th to think about the importance of of deep study of particular places, extremely important. 
Uh, on a discouraging note, the fact that the Social Science Research Council dropped its uh, program of, of uh, fellowships for for uh, scholarship uh, abroad was an extremely noxious decision, and it opens the place for privileging scholarship that has particular ends in mind, rather than leaving it to the imagination of younger students to go and find a topic, uh, and then convincing other people that this is a topic worthy of support. And I uh, certainly hope that younger uh, scholars will continue to strive and move beyond these kinds of obstacles towards finding uh, ways to study more places, more time periods, and to deepen studies, whether whether uh, of their own communities or other people's communities. What we need is a proliferation of, of these kinds of studies. And one of the more encouraging things would be to see more Africans studying European and, and American history, just as we see uh, Americans studying African history. This should be a two-way street. Uh, and I think you'll get a lot of insights the more open it is to people uh, looking beyond their own perspectives towards other people's perspectives uh, on the present and on the past and the future. Yeah, I really appreciate what you just said, especially your point about study abroad, because both Marcia and I have had experience study abroad that was very formative to us as scholars. So, Wholeheartedly agree. And Fred, this was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today and your scholarship over this past half century. Well, thank you for the perceptive questions you've asked and for your and for your interest in the in the same kinds of subjects that I'm interested in. Yeah, and thank you again for all of your work that's been really influential for ours. Well, thank you for saying that. That was Frederick Cooper in conversation with Gene Beeman and Martin Williams. As always, you can follow us online or in your podcast app of choice. And if you're interested in learning more about the Center's people, projects, and rich history, you can visit our website at casbs.stanford.edu. Until next time, from everyone at CASBIS and the Human Centered Team, thanks for listening.